we either assume they're all great leaders and they all have great skill sets that are going to make us great employees versus the perception that, well, we're kind of liabilities. We're broken down, we're disabled, we have PTSD. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome to uh, another educational episode of Stigma Free Vet Zone. We are here in our studio overlooking the peaceful Milwaukee River and the beautiful Museum of Wisconsin Art. Today we are traveling south to Fort Wayne, Indiana to catch up with Purdue University professor and Iraq War veteran, Dr. Michael Kirchner. Michael Kirchner is the Director of Military Student Services at Purdue University, Fort Wayne, and an Assistant Professor of Organizational Leadership where he teaches courses in leadership, training, and human resource development. Previously, Michael Kirchner was the first director of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Military and Veterans Resource Center, where he oversaw programming for the campus's 1,500-plus military-affiliated student population. Under his leadership, 2013 to 2016, the campus built a nationally recognized military college career framework with a focus on supporting student veteran transitions. Dr. Kirchner earned his PhD in human resource development from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and his research on veteran career transitions and applications of military leader development in non-military context has been published in numerous peer review journals. So let's go down to the University of Purdue and welcome Dr. Professor Michael Kirchner. Welcome, Michael. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Michael. Oh, it is an honor. We, we of course, have known each other over the years when you were back in Milwaukee. Uh, so uh, we have known a little bit about your story, but really, really impressed what you've done with the Maverick at, at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee because many of us had difficulty transitioning or even uh, able to uh, finish our, our college uh, careers. So thank you for doing that. So let's introduce Michael to the world. Tell us a little about, about where you're from and um, your childhood and leading up to your decision to enter the military. Sure. Well, Despite living in Fort Wayne, Indiana now, I am still a <laughs> proud Packer fan. Uh, born, raised, lived in Milwaukee all my life outside of the, the year in Iraq, uh, up until moving down here to Indiana and, and accepting a professor job at Purdue University. Had what I would call a, a typical childhood and education experience. And as I approached high school graduation, I was told, like most kids, the next part of your life is going to college. And 
I realized that for me to be able to go to college, I needed money. My parents said, you're going, but we don't have any money. And that made things a little bit tricky. It was thrown out, well, why don't you consider the military? And frankly, I didn't want to graduate from college with $50,000 in debt. And so uh, that decision just made a lot of sense. Um, Things changed quickly. Uh, I was in my first week of boot camp when 9-11 happened. And so that was a bit of a a jarring experience. But the next several years uh, contributed, obviously, greatly to what my career has become. Michael, let me ask you this. Did you have brothers and sisters? And do you have a military background in your family, parents, uh, grandparents? uh... Uh, Grandparent, uncle, uh, my brother, he enlisted in the Air Guard I wouldn't say that the military was the, the primary career path for our family, but it, it was certainly a, a viable one, especially when thinking about uh, the, the opportunities the, that it offers in terms of both college and, and a, a career afterwards. So when 9-11 did hit, of course, nobody was expecting that. How did your family feel about your entrance into the military then? And, and uh, take us up to your actual departure into the military, how you felt about it, what your expectations were, and, and how your family felt about this. Sure. I, I admit the military was never an option. I, I, I prioritized or, or looked at myself as a, a lifelong soldier. I can't say I've ever been passionate about guns or the idea of, of going into combat. Um, when it came time to figure out what do I want to do after high school, the recruiters, they're very good at their job. And <laughs> when, when you got a recruiter coming up to a 17-year-old kid saying, how much fun would it be to shoot tanks and, and, and drive tanks? Uh, of course, that sounds exciting. But, but the real incentive behind it is this pays for college. And, and right. I've never given the impression that I enlisted in the military for the primary purpose of necessarily developing myself or, or I, I just had this incredible level of patriot, patriotic uh, belief. It, it, first and foremost, it was helped me pay for college. And serving in the military it did obviously change my views on, on a lot of things. And, and obviously, I'm, I'm a proud American and, uh, and I'm proud of, of everything that the military does for the country. So, so now you're preparing to leave home, leave Milwaukee for the military, active duty or at least um, into basic training and advanced training. How are you expecting this to go? What are you looking forward to? I mean, this has changed from, uh, this is paying for my school, so uh, in every summer I'll go to camp for two weeks, uh, and now all of a sudden, this is a real war. This is war where lives are going to be lost, and uh, your parents have to think about that. Mothers typically are very concerned about this. What are your expectations now, the day that you're leaving, and, uh, and is your family with you, saying goodbye and waving the flag? Sure, absolutely. And yeah, there is a, a sense of, pride there and obviously wonder of what that experience is going to look like. When 9-11 on that morning, I'll never forget, it was on a, like, like all of the rest of us, uh, that morning I was on a bus and we were going to see a demonstration of 
all the different things we were going to learn and participate in over the course of those uh, nine weeks of basic training and then subsequent AIT. And our drill sergeant stood up and said, y'all better quit screwing around. There's some crazy stuff going on in the world right now. Two planes have just hit the World Trade Center. Another has hit the Pentagon. And during that demonstration, we all were looking around and the general consensus was, this is the mind games they play with you. Oh, yes. It wasn't until three days later, actually, when we were allowed to call home that we knew for sure something had happened. And I didn't see video footage of this happening until the day after Thanksgiving. And so my experience with 9-11 was quite a bit different than most, just because we were, to an extent, sheltered from the trauma that was really going on across the country. What we did see was how the military responded, how the army responded, and how all of a sudden we had all these extra security details to, to be responsible for throughout basic training. But yeah, no doubt my family had similar concerns and thoughts as I did after 9-11. Was this really the right decision? And, and well, now what did we get ourselves into? Yeah. <laughs> and it's a little bit late to say, uh, yeah. can I unsign my name on that, right. on that right. document? Okay, so, so now the reality has come there. And I have to say, Michael, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone say that they were not aware for three days that this was an actuality, that this was not just some uh, training propaganda that was trying to put something in your head to, to improve your training or whatever that was, would have meant, um, nor that you had seen the video for so many days. So when you actually see this, it becomes apparent there's really going to be some activity. And we are um, now how far from your date of deployment? Uh, we still had over three years before I had to, before I was deployed. Um, throughout basic training, you know, it's, it's a reminder that when we enlist, most of us are still kids, naive to the world. We don't really know what's going on. There's all kinds of stories about what basic training is going to be like. And so inevitably those stories are going to come up and we're all going to try to make sense of what's actually happening. And and, and frankly, what sounds more realistic? These are mind games they're playing with us, or we literally just got attacked on our own soil, and it just so happened to be within the first few days of us starting basic training. <laughs> that would be suspect, yes. Right. So now you take this information, uh, go over the next three years, you, you would then, I suppose, have the... You're in a National Guard. Uh, you would have the uh, summer camp for a couple of weeks, for a couple of years in the training. But when did the air of war start to float through the air that you might be leaving, actually be deployed out of the country to some other place um, in actual warfare? We had had a couple instances where we, we were put on alert, at least one instance where we were officially put on alert that something could happen and then we were taken off. But it it really was a, a quick turnaround. We were finishing up our uh, a two-week camp, and interesting enough, uh, we, we had just gotten out of the field. 
we were we're parking our uh, parking the paladins, parking the the tanks. I had a, a ground guide who was backing me up, so I'm backing this many ton tank up, and all of a sudden I see him really quickly crossing his his hand over his neck, which is the the kind of universal kill signal. And he's got this panicked look in his eye. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what just happened? And quickly got out, walked to the back, and uh, he had ground-guided me over a trailer. And uh, so we we had just crushed a trailer. And I, at that point, I'm, I'm thinking, is my military career over? Did I, I mean, how, how much did I just get demoted here? And our leadership came up, looked at it. We can't deal with this right now. We got a formation. And that was when we found out we were being activated and we'd be uh, training in Fort, Fort Hood that next month. I think we only had about a two and a half week or so window to prepare for it. And uh, that was the last I heard about that trailer. trailer. <laughs> Never received a bill. <laughs> no bill in the mail. So your MOS, your, your military occupational was, was tanks. Were you actually the driver of the tank? Uh, the, the nice thing about that MOS is you end up learning all the different positions. And it, and it just so happened that day I was, I was in the, the driver's seat. All right. Well, just for the sake of uh, curiosity, you, you mentioned a trailer. Was it a little trailer that people you know take to the hardware store, or was this a big trailer that had military oh, equipment in it? Hard <laughs> trailer that somehow somehow my ground guide did not see, and, and it's a, a perfect reminder about the importance of having two ground guides: <laughs> yeah. one in the front, one in the back. Yeah, right. Wow. So, so, okay, so now you, you have come to this point. You've gone off to Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, how does your family feeling about this? And w- from the time you are actually deployed to Fort Hood, Texas, how long before you actually leave for, um, I, I don't know if you went directly to Iraq or if you went to some other country staging along the way? Uh, Fort Hood for about a month, and then we spent another three weeks or so in Kuwait doing some final training before uh, making the drive up, drive north. Wow. And, and so do you, do you recall just in retrospect how this is playing out in your head or, or the, from stage to stage to stage, uh, how you're absorbing this? The entire experience was, was surreal. Uh, thinking, constantly reflecting back on the decision to enlist and what did I think was likely uh, what was I told? Uh, you know, the recruiters, they, they can get away with telling you pretty much anything. So he, he told me that the, the day we're deployed, the day, the day the National Guard is activated for war, don't worry because we're bringing the draft back anyway. And he reminded me that, you know what, if you're ever activated, you're, I guarantee you, you're going to see me right alongside with you. Well, take a guess who never showed up. To, to <laughs> <laughs> he, he was too busy recruiting. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's uh, something we've all thought over many times in our head. But, <laughs> but so now you are deployed. You're getting to Kuwait. Do you remember any particular time? Like one thing that I remember landing in Vietnam was when that door opened, all of a sudden there was this veil somewhere between home and the war zone where all of a sudden this became real. Yeah. Do, do you remember? I, 
I, I think there were a couple instances. The that first time getting off the plane in Kuwait, and we had to be uh, that had to be the first or the the first month of October or week of October probably, and just that heat, that hundred forty something degree temperature on the tarmac that was just something I had never experienced before. Spending nights in the desert, where no matter what direction you look, there there is all you see is stars. Um, the the first drive up, where the, our convoy wasn't hit, but the one that was up right before us was, and seeing a, a Humvee burning in the middle of the road, um, just destroyed. And all right, we move on. Those were moments for me that kind of uh, came on. Yeah, this is real. This is real. Interesting when you mentioned the the sky filled with stars from horizon to horizon. Did you really get to uh, uh, to marvel at it and say, wow, that is spectacular? Or was this still part of, holy cow, this is different? I don't know if it's something that I actively tried to do, but I think it was an important aspect of the experience and just appreciating that everything isn't bad and there is still, this is still an experience that uh, assuming I make it out, uh, there's some positives that are going to come from it. And so uh, not every day of deployment is awful. Not every day of war is awful. Uh, And oftentimes it comes back to the people that you're with and, and the experience they help make it. So continue on the road North toward Baghdad and your experience um, for the rest of your deployment? We were responsible for, primarily for operating a checkpoint where Iraqis would would come on post during the day and and work. We were also responsible for uh, another end of a checkpoint where our own troops would go on and off post. That was our primary job for that almost a year. And so there was an awful lot of monotony to the work that we did and very routine and a lot of instances of, of sheer boredom. And uh, we were continuously reminded by leadership and, and to their credit that we can't let our guard down and we have to always be prepared. And, uh, they did a nice job of continuing to switch up their routine and, and challenge us to, uh, with cross training, learn new jobs, uh, be prepared for different situations that could arise, and and even changing the operations of how we ran the the checkpoint to to make sure that uh, how we operated couldn't be easily figured out and determined by uh, potential. Opposition. Iraqis are, are, are attackers. So, so there is that vigilance, constant vigilance to safety. And it sounds like they're doing a fairly good job of keeping morale up by changing the, the monotony of any particular day w- with different uh, with different tests and that sort of thing. But, uh, were you believing in this mission at this point? It was a, a question I asked myself regularly. And I... I came to the realization within months, within the first couple months of being there, that uh, 
at the time we were talking, hopefully being able to pull out within a year or two uh, as a country, uh, withdraw our troops. And I'll, I'll never forget just coming to that realization that we aren't going anywhere for a long time. There, there's way too much work to be done if, if we're serious about making this, uh, helping Iraq transform uh, into essentially what our idealist view is as Americans on, on how Iraq should look and operate. Uh, with that said, I do believe in the intent and the message of what we were trying to do. I think now that we're coming up on 20 years of these wars, um, I, I think we can all agree that maybe that was a little bit too idealistic and not, not realistic. At the time when you're actually there, Michael, how did you perceive the Iraq people to be receiving you? Did you, did you feel that they had the same mission in mind as you did? You know, I think that's an experience that vastly differs depending on who you talk to. And, and to a large extent, I think it's your mindset going in into uh, in a, a combat zone. For myself, I, I questioned, and this was even before we got there, can all of them really be that bad? And, and are, are people innately bad or, or in some parts of the world versus others? And uh, we worked with them daily. Uh, you got to know their names and, and faces, and you had conversations with many of them. Um, we had interpreters that were killed while working with us. Um, I'd say there were a, there was no doubt a substantial portion who appreciated our presence and wanted a better life and, and thought that uh, our presence and the work we were doing could be helpful. But then again, there were plenty of conversations amongst our guys regarding, are they putting on a front for us? Or are they just happy to be working and receiving a paycheck from the American government? And when they go home, are they saying and putting on an entirely different show uh, for their families? So, and no doubt there's some truth to all of it. I would think so. Pretty much the message you were getting when you were in basic training of whether the the nine uh, eleven of whether your own drill sergeants were being honest with you if this was part of the propaganda. So diff difficult to really buy into the mission one hundred percent as you saw it as you were um, working with it, um, but yet you still had that whole sense of doing your job uh, of of responsibility to the military. Yeah, and. This is a conversation and an, an issue I struggle with just as an American in terms of in this country where we operated very individualistic and we're, we often put America first in everything. But I struggle with, well, I was born here. So does that automatically mean I deserve a better life than somebody who just happen to be born in another country that it doesn't have the same opportunities. That's a much poorer, less developed country. Or 
do people around the world deserve to have a better life regardless of where they were born? It's not a right or wrong answer, but it, but it's a, an issue I, I struggle with, uh, struggled with plenty in Iraq and, and continue to struggle with to this day. Wow. Interesting and, and insightful. I, I think there are so many w- ways that war, participation in war, participation in military takes you to extraordinary levels of thinking. I know oftentimes when, after I came back, people would say, wow, that's really deep, man. You really, you're, you're really deep. Well, it's, you know, the, the, the experience is deep. You have to think deep uh, and you almost feel, uh, I don't want to say sorry, but if, if you don't understand that we have to think deep about this, then you don't understand how deep the experiences are. So I, I really appreciate that. So take us on now and you're getting ready to go home unless there's something else that, you know, along in there, but you're ready, to, you're getting ready to go home and your family has been in contact with you, I'm assuming through this time of your deployment. What are you expecting now that you're leaving Iraq and we're in the year 2005 and you're going home? Let's get back to normal. <laughs> I was ready to get home. I, it was uh, a long year. I, I just wanted to get home and, and get back to living what I thought was a normal life and, and get back to living the life I lived before deploying, which as you know, and, and anybody who's been deployed knows, uh, you don't just go back to exactly how things were. But did you expect to go back to things exactly as they had been? I I certainly did. I, I didn't see any changes in myself. I didn't necessarily think that who knows? Maybe it's a, a selfish thought that, well, if things are just going to go back to normal to an extent. Yeah, my life was paused, but uh, it doesn't sound like much changed at home in that in the last year anyway. So uh, things are all going to be good again. Same interests, same friends, same exactly the same as it was had been before. I think it's one of the greatest ambushes of military experience is right. thinking you're going home to that and then finding out as you're about to tell us, what happened when you actually got home? Yeah, it's another crash course. The boot camp is one crash course, and I think returning from combat, no doubt for those who serve on active duty for a a much longer time than I did, it's an entirely another crash course to just come back to this new reality in reanalyzing and examining, well, what is my purpose now? Where do I go from here? What do I care about doing? And uh, yeah, for many of us, that's a, a, a long journey to work through to to reach that that next phase of our lives. Very interesting that you would use the term a different reality, because I think that is what it is. It's a different reality. And we hope we, we think we're coming back to the previous reality. And it's not. And I think that's where there's a lot of pain or trauma or or maybe not even trauma, but just a lot of uh, transition is that period. You think you're coming home to one reality and you're not. There's a different reality that's looming out there, but you're kind of stuck in between them. Yeah, I think part of deployment is just you spend so much time and energy focused on, to an extent, surviving and just getting through the day, getting through the weeks that the rest of the world just kind of shuts out to, to what's going on. In fact, by probably the end of 2004, I, I really didn't have an interest in calling home. 
I, I just didn't care. I didn't really care to hear how much fun somebody had the previous night, how drunk they got the previous. It, it wasn't interesting to me. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was necessarily exciting. And on the other hand, the other, the, the questions that I would guess get asked, you know, are, are, how are you doing? Are you safe? Are you this answering the same questions over and over? It, it got old quickly and, and it, it just kind of wrecked the, the level of interest I had in, in making those calls home. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So, so now you are home. How, uh, and I'm, your family comes to meet you. How is that reconnection, physical reconnection with your family? It was a, obviously an overwhelming feeling. Um, I'll never forget the, the bus ride from Fort McCoy to our, our little duty station there in Oak Creek. And some of the local businesses put signs up welcoming us home. And uh, yeah, very exciting. First thing I said to my dad as I walked off the bus, let's get the hell out of here. (laughs) There was obvious joy. I was obviously happy. I'm sure I probably hugged him, but I just wanted out. I I just wanted out of the uniform. I didn't want to think about or wear it. I just wanted to, to get home. So when we say get out of the uniform, would that mean... With the uniform goes the experience, goes all the mental uh, experience, all the things that you have recorded in your brain. You kind of want to take that off and put it away, too. Is that that fair? Shut down. (laughs) Just shut down. (laughs) (laughs) And and tell us how how well that worked out for you. (laughs) Uh, I'll say my transition was far smoother than I think a lot of other veterans have experienced. And I think for myself, it was this commitment to return to normal. Um, I don't know that I had been home a full week before I started working at my job at at Culver's again. I, I, I think I was home five or six days. They gave a call. Hey, we need somebody to help. Can, can you help? And I was like, well, what else am I doing right now? Um, I know other guys who they went six, seven, eight months without getting a job. And I, I struggle to comprehend what, what's happening in those months. What are you doing? And so I think returning to work and having a civilian sense of purpose uh, ultimately was beneficial for me trying to reacclimate and get and just reconnect with friends and return to some sense of normalcy was definitely a positive. And then several months later, I returned to college. We're speaking with uh, Dr. and Professor Michael Kirchner, who's now down at the University of Purdue in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I was just going to take you back from Michael to school, because if we go back to a pre-military, the reason you joined in the first place was not to go to war, but was to get that money to go to college. So was the, the idea of coming home, was that on your mind that you knew waiting at home, now college was there and it would be paid for? It was. And Wisconsin had a, a very generous tuition reimbursement program even before I deployed. So that was nice. What I can say prior to deployment was I was a whatever student. I, I didn't necessarily care about my studies. It was 
for me, college was get a job, just get through the courses. I'll, I'll, I have no interest in failing any classes. I have no interest in taking any longer, but I, I was a whatever forgettable student. And following the sequence, the next steps without a passion. Yeah, exactly. I, in fact, I, I only met with an advisor twice in my entire undergrad program. And it, who knows how my advisor made it all work where <laughs> I was able to graduate on time, but it, it all just came together late, late in the program. But I was really just going through the motions with it all prior to deploying. And, and when I got back and returned, there was a heightened level of, okay, well, now at this point, most of my friends have moved into their career field. Uh, they, they graduated from college. They've, they've got a good job, and, and I'm still at Culver's. And a war veteran. And, and a war veteran. But I'm, stu- I'm a little bit stuck right now upon returning home that uh, what's next. And I know this is a feeling that a lot of veterans experience is that, okay, maybe I've, I've given some time to the country I've served, but what do I have to show for it as compared to those who graduated high school with me, who now maybe do have their families and now they're making a good income and and they're in a job that they want to be in uh, versus others who, yeah, they transition out and, and, struggle with, well, what do I have to show for what I've done over the last few years? Where did it get me? So, so, but it did get you there. I mean, it got you to where you are making the comparisons with, with your, your friends and where they've gotten, that's a curiosity, but, but it's not helpful. You still have to focus on where you want to go now. Was that difficult for you? Or when you went back to school, did you say, finally see something in the List of courses, what do they call that book? Uh, I remember being fascinated. Course catalog. Yeah, uh, the the timetable of student uh, of classes available. I remember seeing it the first time and said, holy cow, I don't even know what half of these majors are. So did you find something that you really look forward to that uh, any passion coming back or was this just going to fill time now? So I, I'm, I'm a, a shorter guy. I'm on the shorter end of the height spectrum I was always, I, I love football. So I, I want to play professional football and slowly in college, I accepted the fact that's not going to happen. So maybe I can become, <laughs> maybe I can become a coach and, and coach football. And, and yeah, that didn't necessarily happen. So I ended up getting into adult education with the thought I'll get, I'll get a career as a, a corporate trainer, work my way up that way. I'll make good money doing that type of work. But graduating in December 2008 in that economy, uh, 2009 was a rough year looking for a job. And, and that was kind of a, a transformative moment in my life that, you know, I did everything I was supposed to. I, I went to college. I graduated. I, I, did, I did good enough in college to get a job. On top of that, everybody loves veterans and, and I'm a, I'm a combat veteran. Why don't, why don't employers love me and, and offer me a job or at least give me an interview. And I, I, I just came to the realization that just because you have a degree and just because you're a veteran, it doesn't make you special to, at least to all employers that they're just going to go out of their way and, and give you a job uh, you still need to go out of your way and, and earn that job. 
so Michael, we're in the year 2008, you've graduated, graduated with what degree? What is your, what is your field of study? That was a, a bachelor's degree in uh, edu- uh, educational studies with a focus on adult education. So now you're starting to think about what? I'm starting to think about my career and how do I, how do I make some decent money? I knew I liked to work with adults. I had toyed with the idea of being a teacher of some time, some type, possibly a high school teacher. And then I can coach my football and work my way up there. But really it was, I, I need to, get going with my career and jumpstart things a bit. I'm 27 years old. Uh, I, I need to get going and doing something. And, and so that was where my focus was at. I, I was fortunate that at the end of 2009, I reached out to one of my former professors who always talked about using your network, use your network, use your network to help you out. And almost out of spite, I emailed her and and asked if she knew of any opportunities. And sure enough, she said, well, I've got an adult education instructor position where you'd be teaching low-income adults, helping them earn their GEDs, transition into college, find full-time jobs. And while working in nonprofit wasn't necessarily a world that I ever considered, uh, it, it turned out to be a, a very impactful decision for me long-term. So, so now we are in the year... Are we still in the year 2008 or 2010? I I know that today you're married. Are you married now at this time? I am. And and you're happily married and you've got a daughter. Is family life important to you at this time? Uh, And and that must put a little bit more incentive on you to, I've got a family to take care of. Uh, How does that playing in now to this choice? used to be just this, you know, on your own. Uh, looking for a future and, and dictating your future. How is the family playing into your decision-making now? Um, back then, I, I I think it was more so a focus on getting myself established and, and figuring out, is this the, the career field that I want to be in? Uh, no doubt still making some comparisons with friends and my peers that I graduated with and, and just trying to accept this is where I'm at right now. And, and if I want to advance, I, I need to do some something different. Uh, and no doubt there was still a period of figuring out, is this even in the career field that I'm interested in or do I need to make another shift? And the shift you make is interesting. Take us up to that, how you start to get into the leadership that started MACV and why you started MACV at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and exactly what MACV is. But then all of the work that you decided to do is in helping veterans to this day. And how is it that veterans are special to you? I, I'm trying to think a lot of veterans who are as successful in a transition get out of themselves and want to help other people and typically want to help other veterans or right. somehow in that community. So take us through MACV and up to your career helping veterans today. Sure. I returned to grad school in 2011, and it was another acceptance point that I I realized if I want to advance my career as a professional, especially if I'm going to stay in nonprofit work, I'm going to need some type of grad degree, a, a master's degree. And 
it was in that time, one of my courses, that first semester, it was a program planning course. And you were tasked with create a program and present that program to the class at the end of the semester. And I just so happened to present a program that I thought would help veterans transition out. And a classmate after my presentation said, Mike, I had no idea you were a veteran. I want to start a veterans organization here, but I need your help. And I blew her off for a a two to three week period. I was already working full time. I was a full time student. And frankly, I questioned if there was even a need for a student veteran organization. I we're adults. We've we've gone through combat. We've we've survived basic training. We've been away from our families for years, etc. Is there really any interest in a student veteran organization? But she stayed on me, and I finally said, "Fine, let's do it." Three months later, somehow we had more than fifty vets signed up, and it just that was a jarring moment for me. That well. College doesn't have to be only a place where you step in a classroom, receive your instruction, and go home. Uh, We don't all have to feel like that, number one. But number two, uh, veterans certainly appear to feel isolated and to struggle with this transition into college. And there's some apparent value uh, to veterans attending UW-Milwaukee that this is something they want to see. And that's where things just took off. I think it's it's so important to reiterate that point that a lot of us go back to college with this expectation that the GI Bill is there, the money is there, we'll go back, we'll get a degree, even though we may be confused by what that degree might be, but at least we'll be in college, we'll be working towards something, and we don't realize how difficult it might be just to focus on the courses we're taking, to absorb the information, to retain it, to be able to make sense of it, because we still haven't psychologically transitioned or resolved the issues from war. So what you're really developing is a place for veterans to meet on the campus at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, to be in similar uh, friendships, uh, similar surroundings, similar minds uh, while they're um, transitioning back for college. Yeah, I think it comes back to the the old saying, we don't know what we don't know. And I, I just had this assumption, well, college is tough and you suck it up and you deal with it and we all have to figure it out on our own. Um, most around me look like they're doing okay. So I, I, I guess, yeah, while it's a challenge, we're, we're going to be okay and we're all expected to graduate. It, it wasn't until we did a survey of our campus student veterans and the consistency in the responses shared about, I'd love to see a veteran resource center <clears throat> on campus. I'd love to meet other veterans on campus. Uh, I don't feel like I'm a part of or, or have any connection to the campus whatsoever. It was that consistency that, that revealed, wow, we maybe have a lot of work to do here. (laughs) It's so remarkable because I think it's so true. Uh, And a lot of us who went through that, that sense of, I don't belong here, think it's only us. You know, I'm alone. I'm the only one who's feeling this. I'm the only one who feels detached. I don't feel like I belong here. And so in so many different circumstances, Michael, 
not just at the university, but veterans finding other veterans seems to be one of the most therapeutic experiences that we, we come across is that com commonality of, of, of experience. No, no so now you've started MACV and, and continue on with how this all develops and how this takes you into your next step in education. Sure. So as I said, I was working nonprofit for a nonprofit organization in Milwaukee, and it was very rewarding work for me. I, I thought I was going to continue working in nonprofit teaching and helping low-income adults uh, just advance in their lives. But I was also committing quite a bit of time to that student veteran organization. And there was a movement on campus to start a veteran resource center. Well, they needed a director. And they asked, campus leadership asked if I'd consider leading it. Um, and so I guess very quickly jumped into it. It was a, a unique opportunity to to work on campus, I, I was motivated to see us finish what we had started with our student veteran organization. And I was also planning to go back and continue on my studies for a doctorate. And I thought working on campus would just make things that much easier to be able to, all right, I'll just be on campus all the time for my classes. Well, as I was doing going through my interview for the doc program, I shared that I wanted to do research on the leadership of our K-12 systems, the, the principals and superintendents, because I was concerned that there were students that were graduating who didn't know basic multiplication, and yet somehow they were being handed a high school diploma. Uh, that terrified me, and as a, a leadership guy, I, I often go back to the leaders as, let's take a look what's happening there. Well, the, the DOC program admissions committee said, that's great that you want to do that research, Mike, but you have no credibility. <laughs> You've never worked in, a, in the K-12 system before, but we understand you started a student veteran organization and there might, it sounds like there might be something happening there. You have interest in looking at that because you do have credibility there. And so it, it's these little moments in my life that really kind of shaped the, the direction for my career. Yes, there was an obvious uh, interest to an extent, but it was these other factors that just continued to nudge me along the way and, and have kept me here ever since. Interesting that you were calling, <clears throat> excuse me, these little moments when they're actually significant moments. If you're, if you're uh, aware of them or wake up to them when they, when they come by, significant moments can be very, very powerful in our lives. So now you've got this significant uh, desire to move on and continue helping veterans. But let me just ask you one thing along the way, Michael. Are you having veterans come to you and thank you for this organization or, or at least expressing some gratitude that this organization is existing for veterans on campus because it was difficult without it? Uh, it was pretty special. And it's always been special when you hear veterans show their appreciation for, for what's happen, happening on campus or uh, their appreciation for things that have been done to, to support their transitions. I, I need to acknowledge Maverick wasn't something I did. I, I wasn't the one that started the movement. I, 
I, I agreed to be part of the movement just as the second person in this story. And uh, but what happened with our student veteran organization and with the the Veteran Resource Center at UW Milwaukee? Uh, that was an awful lot of veterans coming together in support of of this mission and idea of okay, we're calling ourselves a veteran friendly campus. Let's actually make it a veteran friendly campus. Say that one more time. Because I think that's important. Rather than just calling it that, you've made it that. And I believe the number that we read in your biography was uh, 1,500 plus veterans on the campus. That, that, that is really impressive. At the time, UW-Milwaukee had more veterans than any school in, in essentially the Midwest outside of Ohio State University, um, which, which was eye-opening but it also helped our credibility on campus when you put all the zeros behind those tuition dollars coming from the federal government that if we don't do a better job of supporting and retaining these students, there's some costs that come along with that. So naturally, yeah, that helped our mission substantially, uh, just those sheer numbers of veterans that we had the opportunity to support and, and, uh, yeah, it made the work that much more special. So now you continue on for your PhD and tell us about the PhD and how that got you, this great football fan, to a Big Ten school at the University of, of Purdue University and what you're doing there. Sure. So all of my career has been uh, very highly supported by great mentors. And those mentors have been the ones that have not only supported me along the way, but also provided encouragement and and created opportunities. I feel fortunate to be in the role I'm in today, and I know 100% it's because of those people who uh, looked out for me, gave me great advice, challenged me along the way. Um, and, and throughout the doc program, I, I had an advisor who uh, continued to push me. Uh, Mike, let's let's present at this conference. Let's let's try to publish this article. And I actually had two advisors through my grad studies, uh, both who I remain in close contact with. Uh, one I'm meeting with again next week. Another I'm meeting with in an hour and a half. And it, it's those people that have shaped my career. And, and frankly, it, it's those types of people that I think shape a lot of our careers and our career paths. Let, let me take you back a little bit to when, when you mentioned earlier in your college career, you were just there, but didn't really know why. You were going through the, the motions. It was the next step after high school, no real direction of where you were going. Tell us about this whole idea. You can have all the mentors in the world, but if you're not responding to it, if you're not taking some action, tell us about the responsibility of wanting to change. A lot of people would say mission from military. I don't particularly like that, but continuing on in life and taking responsibility for finding this new reality that you had mentioned before. Your reality has changed. Well, you're forming a new reality, but not many of us consciously think about changing our reality, but you're taking responsibility for using your life to find something new, some new purpose. And that's where you are, and it turns out to be with veterans. So is, is that a fair statement to say that it's not just having these, these mentors, 
But you really have to be looking to, you have to put some effort into it and you have to take responsibility for all of this. Right. No doubt about that. And I think the military does a great job of, of helping us as service members understand our sense of purpose, our, our sense of purpose to uh, our fellow soldiers, to our country, to the mission of the military. But that's a challenge for us when you get out is, okay, well, what is my purpose now? What do I exist to do? Because our, to a large extent, this sense of purpose in combat and for those on active duty, you know what that sense of purpose is. You know what your responsibility is every day. And when you get out, there is an incredible amount of freedom that, that you're afforded. And, and while in, on one hand, that's a great thing that you can go anywhere and do whatever you would like, that freedom can also be overwhelming. And then throw on top, I, I just left this career field where I did have a very clear sense of purpose. And it, it, it contributes to that challenge many vets experience transitioning out of the military. So how in your work today at Purdue University, you're a, an assistant professor of organizational leadership where you teach courses in leadership training and human resource development. How is that, in your view, helping veterans today and in that field? Because you, you, you go on to mention in your biography that this, you want this to be veteran-friendly, the work that you're doing, for those businesses that are receptive to hiring veterans. Tell us about that dynamic. Sure. And as a, a professor, we, we have to manage a few different responsibilities. We obviously have our teaching responsibilities. And uh, so that's whether for undergraduate students, graduate students, but then we also have our research and veteran career transitions and uh, military leader development, uh, veteran professional identity development, that type of stuff is, that's where my, my research focus is on, is what are some of the things we're doing that are effective for veteran transitions? What are things that veterans are doing that have been helpful? What are things the military has done or is doing that's been helpful to veteran career transitions? And what are things that organizations and employers are doing to help with those transitions. I, I think there's, we have these various stakeholder groups and we all have a responsibility in helping veterans have a successful transition out of the military and into a new career field, whatever that career field is. And this goes back to, I guess, my own pet peeve about how we perceive veterans and, and categorize veterans and that uh, we either assume they're all assets, they're all great leaders, and they all have, we all have great skill sets that are going to make us great employees versus the perception that, well, we're, we're kind of liabilities, whether we're, we're broken down, we're disabled, we have PTSD, we're taking time bombs, or, or that third category I often see and feel like I hear from organizations and that we're veterans are, are mostly a social responsibility. We have a responsibility to take care of them because of the sacrifices they've made for us. And I, I think that oversimplifies veteran career transitions and who veterans are 
and and eliminates the individuality. And we're all going through a unique transition. Uh, yes, there are some some shared experiences, but veterans have to take responsibility for their own transitions and and employers have a responsibility in supporting those transitions. Higher ed has a responsibility in supporting those unique transitions. It's absolutely important work, wonderful work. I, I want to touch on one thing before we, we close for today, Michael, and that is um, Dr. Lee, who was a guest of ours, had mentioned that the family is a casualty of war. And now you are married. You have a daughter, I believe. How important is your family to you? I mean, we've talked a lot about the military, but is, is it important to you to maintain a healthy family life as well? Oh, absolutely. And I think just in the times we're living in right now, the the chaos we're dealing with as a country politically and this pandemic, this health crisis we're going to, I, I think regardless of whether you're a veteran or not, we're all holding a little bit closer to our families and sense of safety and security. Uh, I think military service maybe has a role in uh, helping us better understand the importance of family and the role they play in you having a successful experience while serving. But no doubt, uh, family family is something that's very important. And, and, and not just, um, I guess I'm adding to your statement, but not, not just professionally, but there is that thing called happiness, <laughs> you know, that, that the family is part of that life outside of work that we're also responsible for that maintaining the, the happiness in our homes or the health of our homes. So um, that, that's always part of what we do. But Michael, share with us where veterans or anyone interested in the work you're doing can get a hold of you to learn more. I'm very easy to find on a Google search. You can you can look me up at Purdue Fort Wayne in our organizational leadership program. I can be reached via email at my campus email, k i r c h n e m at pfw.edu. I enjoy I enjoy talking about these issues. I I take pride and and. I want to help veterans through these transitions. And so um, I get back to, to people anytime they ask for for questions or support or I, letters of recommendation, whatever I can do to help these career transitions and, and help veterans find that new sense of purpose. And with organizations who would invite you to speak with them on these topics of, uh, of veteran employment and uh, all the issues that they might have an interest in for veterans. Absolutely. So how old are you today, Michael? Oh, about 37. <laughs> and, and have you given up all hopes of a professional football career? So we can, we can assume you're going to continue with working with veterans or are you holding out? Even with how well they're doing this year, they're, <laughs> some of the play calls once in a while, get your head scratching. And, ah, maybe I can still do this. Yeah. Share with us one of your favorite resources for veterans who might be struggling. Where, where would you send them? What's, what's a good resource for them? And what's a, just a, a word of hope for veterans and military families who are struggling? I saw recently there's some 45,000 veteran service organizations out there. And whether these are 
VFW Polis, American Legion, uh, other types of organizations that are intended to help veteran transitions. And we've got everything from participation in natural disasters to uh, workout and fitness organizations that are, are primarily veteran focused organizations that focus on hunting or fishing or the outdoors or there's any thing that you could possibly be interested in as a veteran there's there's a program or service opportunity out there and I I I don't even feel comfortable saying this is what I think is the best because it's what would have been or helpful for myself we all have different interests. And so my recommendation or suggestion would be think about what, what you care about and what you're passionate about and, and reach out. It's, it's uncomfortable to, to make that ask to whether it's about asking for help or just saying you're interested in learning more, but it's those types of steps that I think help us all through that transition and and shed our military identity a, a bit and, and help us become civilians again and, and find that new sense of purpose. Find the future, the next step forward. I agree with you 100%. Dr. Michael Kirchner, professor at Purdue University at Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you so much for joining us today. And for anyone who is interested in learning more about Michael, you'll find more on his biography on our website, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. And we want to thank everyone for joining us today on Stigma Free Vet Zone. And this show is made possible through a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. And for additional resources, please visit our website at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Or for more ease, just the letter O, the letter F, the number four, Vets.org. Dr. Michael Kirchner, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. This has been, as we expected, very educational. And thank you for all you're doing for our veterans and for our military families. Likewise, Michael. Thank you for having me. Happy to do it. Uh, folks, we are always uh, wanting to pass on the Veterans Crisis Line for you at 1-800-273-8255 and then press the number one. That's 1-800-273-8255. Press the number one. There's people there that are very much interested and willing to speak with you 24 hours a day. So don't hesitate to call these people. They're there for you. Our sound engineers today are Ben Slain and Mark Heleniak. And for co-host Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban. Thank you for joining us and spending some time. <laughs>